Well, I want to encourage you to turn your Bibles this morning to uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. I'm going to begin reading in verse 13 down through verse 18 of Matthew, uh, chapter 16. Matthew, chapter 16, and verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. He was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And let us pray. Father, again, we we draw near to thee and, and thank you for the encouragement we have to lift our voices in prayer and these moments, again, I, I would ask for the help of your, your Holy Spirit during our time together in the Word, uh, that you would give me insight and understanding. And I, I pray also for those who are here that you, by your Holy Spirit, would give them insight and understanding into your precious Word. I pray it would all certainly be for your glory, and it would be um, a, a solace to our own soul as we think of the, the glory of your precious and holy church of which we are a part. So I, I thank you for that and, and pray this would be pleasing to thee and commit our time to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have uh, <clears throat> excuse me, noted many times uh, over the years that when I'm uh, away for a while and by away for a while, the week before last we were down at the ocean uh, for a few days, and, and often when that is the case, my, my mind will be drawn to a particular theme that I find is a, a tonic to my soul and an encouragement, and then I have to try to discern, is this just for my own benefit, or is it something that I should study a little bit and, and turn into a sermon, and I have chosen to do that, so uh, I hope it will be a help to your soul. We do plan on getting back into the book of Hebrews. And uh, to kind of to zero in on it, the basic theme, kind of in general, that I, I found edifying to my own heart, has to do with uh, the sovereignty of God as it relates to the, the reality and the progress of the church. The sovereignty of God in particular, as it relates to the, the, the reality and the progress of the church. Um, to, and then relatedly to the incomparable benefit of being a part of that church, and especially the, the certainty that there is going to be progress, the certainty that there will be victory in the church. And a text that I, I felt that brings this out, um, at least an aspect of it, is Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, where our Lord says to the Apostle Peter, um, you are Peter, excuse me, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Uh, there's no overt mention here of the sovereignty of God, but it is clear, a clear revelation of his purpose and his plan uh, being carried out as it relates to the people that he has given to his son. 
And the context within which this, this messianic affirmation, I will build my church, occurs, it's Peter's confession of faith in Christ as Messiah, his confession in faith in, in, of faith in Christ as the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And the inspired comment on this is that flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So his confession of faith in Christ as the Messiah was not related to some innate spiritual ability that he had, but rather it it was God working in his heart. It was God doing a work indoors to open up his, his mind and heart to understand that. And within the context of this confession, it's within the context of this confession that our Lord says, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. So we have this messianic affirmation, I will build my church, which brings out the reality of the church and also the certainty of the advance of the church. And I simply, this, I, I, it's kind of like an extended meditation, I suppose. I want to bring out the glory of being a part of the Lord's church by means of three messianic uh, considerations. And, and the first one is this. <clears throat> there is a messianic foundation. The glory of the church is seen in, in light of a messianic foundation. And what I'm going to argue here is that that foundation is Peter's confession of faith in the person of Christ. We'll kind of go a few different directions under this heading. But when I say messianic foundation, fundamentally what I'm referring to is Peter's confession of Christ as the Messiah. Peter's confession of Christ as the anointed one from the Old Testament uh, who will deliver the people of God, who will be a prophet and priest and king. Uh, We read, and I also... This is in light of Peter's recognition and persuasion of him as Messiah. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. The term rock connotes to our our mind a solid foundation. Towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, um, we read that Jesus compares all those who respond to his word in a positive sense, those who built their house on a rock, and even if the rain falls and the flood comes and, and the winds blow against that house, um, it will not fall because it was founded upon a rock. Conversely, all who hear his word and do not respond to it, they're compared to those who, who build their house on sand and the rain falls and the flood comes, it bursts against the house, but great is the fall of that house. Now, you will notice if you have a New American Standard version of the Bible over in the side column, The Greek term petros, upon which Peter's name is built, means stone, whereas the term petra, that's translated rock, has to do with a a large kind of rock. One commentator noted that Josephus, the Jewish historian, um, used it to describe the massive fitted stone blocks in the towers of Jerusalem as contrasted with the ordinary rocks that men carry around. It was also used a huge rock suited for the foundation of a building. So it, um, it intimates or denotes to our minds a solid foundation for a house or for a building. It will be sustained in the midst of wind and rain. Now the interpretive challenge here is what does the term rock refer to? Uh, does it refer to Peter? Does it refer to Jesus? Does it refer to Peter's faith? Does it refer to Peter's confession of faith? Does it refer to Jesus himself? Does it refer to the teaching of the Lord Jesus? And uh, a little bit of a... Of a Sidetrack here, I hope it will be helpful. You may know that the Roman Catholics use this text to show that Peter is the first pope. 
And so many Protestant interpreters, therefore, believe the reference here, it's not to Peter at all, but it's to Jesus Christ himself. Now, if that's the way that you understand it, um, that's a really good interpretation. And, and so you have good company if you understand the rock as referring to the person of Christ. And the advantage of understanding it that way, it kind of easily dismisses the Roman Catholic understanding of the text saying, it doesn't refer to Peter at all. It refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. So it, it more easily dismisses their, what we would call their aberration and their understanding of the text. Nevertheless, I, I want to argue that it does refer to Peter as a prominent instrument that God used in the advancing of the church, and that you can maintain that position without regarding him as the first pope. So under this heading, I want to develop our thinking by means of two observations. And the first one is simply to act a little bit, interact a little bit with this idea of um, the contention of the Roman Catholic Church. The text does not teach that Peter was the first pope. Uh, Leon Morris wrote, some scholars especially from the Roman Catholic world, have insisted that Jesus is saying that Peter is the rock on which the whole church is built, and accordingly, that only the church that can claim to be built on the apostle is the true church. And then William Hendrickson actually quotes various Roman Catholic authors who say the Pope is crowned with a triple crown as king of heaven, of earth, and of hell. He wields the two swords, the spiritual and the temporal. The Catholic Church teaches that our Lord conferred on St. Peter the first place of honor, and jurisdiction in the government of his whole church. And that same spiritual authority has always resided in the popes or bishops of Rome as being the successors of St. Peter. Consequently, to be true followers of Christ, all Christians, both among the clergy and laity, must be in communion with the, the see of Rome, that's capital S-E-E, -E, which would be the jurisdiction of the pope, must be in communion with the see of Rome, where Peter rules in the person of his successor. Now, in, in responding to that, John Broadus, an early Southern Baptist theologian, <clears throat> says, oh, grant that the rock is Peter, consider, that, consider what the Roman Catholic will then have to show in order to establish the claims of the papacy. Number one, he must show that Peter alone was the founder of Christianity. Of this, there is no evidence. Um, against it, we find various expressed declarations, especially Ephesians 2.20, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The history and the Acts and the epistles is also opposed to this notion, especially Acts 15, where Peter does not at all act separately or appear to be supreme. And it's really James that suggests the measure adopted by the brethren. <clears throat> Broadus goes on, he must show that Peter not only was the sole founder of Christianity, but that he was vice-regent of God and the sovereign of all Christians. No scripture testifies this at all, and the whole tone of the New Testament is against it. He writes, he must show that this supposed authority of Peter's was transmissible, <clears throat> of which there is no particle of evidence in the New Testament, and strangely inconsistent with the very image of the cornerstone or foundation rock to suppose are frequently removed and a new one substituted. Now, in conjunction with this, D.A. Carson said the text says nothing at all about Peter's successor's infallibility or exclusive authority. And to this, we can, we can simply add, if Peter was somehow given a chief place in the early church, it makes the, dis the discussion the disciples had about who's the greatest in the kingdom of God seem a little bit irrelevant. Uh, Leon Morris said they at any rate knew nothing of, the P excuse me, of Peter as the supreme pontiff. The early church knows nothing of a supreme headship over the church possessed by Peter. And kind of <clears throat> along the same lines, he, he, along with John, was sent out by the church in Acts chapter 8 and verse 14. In Acts chapter 11, he is called by the church to give an account of himself. 
Uh, and as we noted, James, not Peter, presided over the council in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. And as you have read, Paul rebukes Peter rather sharply in Galatians chapter 2. J.C. Ryle wrote to speak of an erring, fallible child of Adam as the foundation of the spiritual temple is very unlike the ordinary language of Scripture. So the, the text, this text in conjunction with others in the New Testament does not teach that Peter was the first pope, does not teach that he himself was the founder of Christianity. It says nothing about a unique authority that he possessed and transferred to one another or to others. <clears throat> Secondly, <clears throat> excuse me, fighting a cold, so I'm just... You know, have to put up with hope. It's not too distracting here, but we'll just press on. Okay, secondly, under this heading, under this first heading, in what sense was Peter the rock on which Christ would build his church? I mean, the text does say that. So in what sense was he the rock on which Christ would, would build his church? Well, in, in the flow of thought, our Lord, he, he's responding to Peter's confession, um, the, to Peter's confession, and seeing our Lord's words fundamentally applied to Peter just seems like the most natural way to take it. But he was not the rock based on anything in his fallible human, human nature. But in the context, what stands out is his confession of, of faith in Christ as the Messiah, as I indicated. What stands out is his confession of faith in Christ as the anointed one that was prophesied in the Old Testament who would be a prophet, a priest, and a king and would deliver men and women from their sins. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> and this is what stands out. And he was utterly persuaded of that. As one says, moreover, the statement that the rock is Peter is true only as we keep in mind what that apostle has just said. It's not simply Peter as Peter, but one who's confessed Jesus as the Messiah, who is the church's foundation on whom the church is to be built. And in one sense, saying that Peter is the rock, it's not much difference in saying that it refers to Christ because it's Peter insofar as he is embracing and promoting the reality of Christ as the Messiah. <clears throat> Morris says, we must not separate the man from the words he has first spoken. From the earliest times, it has been recognized that Peter's faith is important for an understanding of the passage. Thus, Chrysostom, an early church father, cites the words, Upon this rock I will build my church, and immediately goes on, that is, on the faith of his confession. Any interpretation that minimizes the importance of the faith that found expression in Peter's words is to be rejected. So most basically, it has reference to his reception and complete persuasion that Jesus is the Messiah. And one factor, I think, that supports this is we, we notice there that, that Peter does have a prominence in the providence of God. He does have a prominence in the development and the advent of the, the advancing of the gospel in the early church. And this is, to quote um, Wim Hendrickson, he says, the history of the early church as recorded in the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts abundantly proves that Christ's prophecy regarding Peter was fulfilled. In that large section of Acts, the name of Peter occurs more than 50 times. Here it is found everywhere except in Acts 6 and 7, which contain the story of, Steve, of Stephen. <clears throat> During that very early period before Paul comes onto the scene, Peter was the most powerful and effective human link between Jesus and the church, the most influential means of its inward and outward growth. It was Peter who preached the sermon on Pentecost, as a result of which not less than 3,000 people were converted. 
It was again through the testimony of Peter and John, chiefly of Peter, the 2,000 were subsequently added to the membership. Other events in which Peter took a leading part were the election of Matthias to the place of Judas Iscariot, the healing of the lame beggar, the heroic proclamation of Jesus Christ before the Sanhedrin. It's been pointed out earlier in every listing of the 12, Peter's name occurs first. So what we're saying here, Peter was not the first pope. But he was the rock upon which Christ would build the church. He confesses Christ as Messiah. He had a prominent role in the early church. So we have, in the first place, this messianic foundation. It's Peter's confession of Christ. Then, <clears throat> secondly, what I'm calling a messianic determination. Um, and this helps to, to bring out, I think, something of the glory of, of the church. Messianic determination. And I'm thinking of the words, upon this rock, I will build my <clears throat> church. And here's where this sense of, of certainty is very prominent. God's sovereign purpose with respect to the church, it cannot be frustrated. It's very similar to the language of uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, and <clears throat> verses 4 and 5. Coming to him as to a living stone rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God. <clears throat> you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Uh, the, the term church has various nuances of meaning. It can be a, uh, an assembly that's regularly summoned as a political body. Acts 19.39 speaks of a lawful assembly. Or just simply a gathering or a meeting. <clears throat> Acts 19.40, disorderly gathering. But then it's used of the church as a, a congregation. Into some excuse me subcategories here, um, a church meeting, First Corinthians eleven eighteen. When you come together as a church, the totality of the church in a particular place, First Thessalonians chapter one, to the church at Thessalonica, it's used of house churches, and then it's used of the universal church. That is, um, the church, all all the people that are purchased by the person of Christ, and and that is how it is used here. Some other examples of that, Acts 9.31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> it continued to increase. <clears throat> For, excuse me. 1 Corinthians 12, 28, God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, and so forth. Ephesians 3.21 to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Philippians 3, 6, as to zeal, Paul says, he was a persecutor of the church. But I, I think our, our appreciation for our Lord's determination to build this, the church, it's enhanced by, by two uh, factors here. Number one is the continuity, the continuity of the people of God, it's continuity with the people of God in the Old Testament. Carson writes, even the idea of a building, this idea of a building springs from the Old Testament. In 2 Samuel 7, 13, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In 1 Chronicles 17, 12, he shall build for me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. One writes, this is George Eldon Ladd, the theologian. Jesus' announcement of his purpose to build his ecclesia, that's the Greek term for church, suggests <coughs> that the fellowship established by Jesus 
excuse me, in direct continuity with the Old Testament Israel, construed as the faithful remnant with the eyes of faith, to come to terms with the new revelation. And this term, ecclesia, it's used of the Israelites gathering together as a church in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. In Hebrews 2.12, I will proclaim thy name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. In the midst of the church, I will sing that, I will sing thy praise. That's a quote of Psalm 22 and verse 22. So he will build his church, but he's already also been building his church. Secondly, the Lord of glory looks at the church as his own possession. He says, I will build my church. So you see determination, but you see also it's his own possession. And I think this intensifies this power of determination to build the church. We can elaborate a little bit on, on, on this and say it, it's his church because he is the head of the church. And Ephesians 1.22, he put all things in subjection under his feet, gave him his head over all things to the church. So he is preeminent and authoritative in the church. It's his church because the members are the same who were given to him by the Father before the foundation of the world. We read in our Lord's high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, verse 2, even as thou gavest him authority over all mankind, that to whom all thou hast given him, he may give eternal life. In verse 6 and following, Jesus says in his prayer, I manifested thy name to the men whom thou gavest me out of the world. Thine thy were, thou gavest them to me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have come to know that everything thou hast given me is from thee. For the words which thou hast given me, I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from thee. And they believed that thou didst send me. And then he says, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom thou hast given me. He's not praying for everybody, but he is praying specifically for those whom the Father has given him. <clears throat> it's his church because he sovereignly adds to it as it pleases him to do so. In Acts 2.47, <clears throat> in the context of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord, referring to Jesus, added to the church daily, such as should be saved. That does not mean he's adding to the totality of their number, but he's continued to gather in time those whom the Father has given him. And fourthly, it's his church because he purchased it with his own blood. In 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So it's his church by right of redemption. He purchased it by means of his atoning death on the cross. This means also that um, those who are a part of this particular church are the, the object of his unique affection. In Ephesians 5.25, it says, Husbands, love your wives, just as also Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. He, he died for the church. He loves the elect. He loves the church in, in a very unique sense. This means, by the way, that, that all the Old Testament saints are a part of the church because there's no one, no way that anyone is ever reconciled to God but on the basis of the blood of Christ. So every single saved person from the beginning of time is a part of the church because every single person who is reconciled to God is only reconciled to God in one way, on the basis of the blood of Christ, on the basis of the one sacrificial sacrifice. So we know there's a, a stream of particular, particularity that flows through this chosen in him before the foundation of the world, people whom the Father has given to the Son, 
all who are redeemed by his blood, they're the unique objects of his love. Um, and this personal dimension, I will build my church, underscores the eternal safety of the soul. Just to wander to John chapter 10, Jesus said to them, I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. These bear witness of me, but you do not believe because you're not of my sheep. And Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall ever snatch them out of my Father's hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So we have, number one, a messianic foundation, and then secondly, by way of meditation, a messianic determination, I will build my church. And then thirdly, messianic consummation. That is, <clears throat> the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. That is, no force can either stop the progress, progress of the church or its ultimate culmination. It's kind of the, the same spirit of Romans chapter 8 and verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? But in all these things we over, overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. <clears throat> now, you would have concluded this uh, from the verses that we have already considered. You have been convinced of this from the nature of Christ. He's the creator and the sustainer of the universe. But what, what this phrase does bring out is there's always been great opposition to the advancing of the church. Christ will build his church in spite of all the hostility that is arrayed against it. Now, second interpretive challenge here is what do the gates of Hades or the gates of hell refer to? Some construe it as referring to the realm of the dead. Uh, death will not overpower the church. The church um, will never die, and that is certainly true. But the, the language here is quite strong and seems to imply overt opposition to its progress. The, the term means to overpower, to have strength against, to, to gain mastery over. And uh, William Hendrickson, his understanding, at least it commended itself to my own thinking process. He writes, gates of hell by metonymy. And metonymy is a term that uh, refers to a, a figure when one word is used for another where they're related to one another. I enjoy the Puritan John Owen. So if I were to say, say to you, I enjoy reading Owen. Owen stands for his writings. Or if you read in the newspaper, the White House released a statement about the, the current crisis. The White House stands for the president or some spokesman. And so um, he writes, gates of hell by metonymy represent Satan and his legions, as it were, storming out of hell's gates in order to attack and destroy the church. And what we have here is an oft-repeated promise of victory of Christ's church over the forces of evil. And this understanding fits in with the force of the text and with the teaching, I think, of the New Testament. When you begin to read the Gospels and the coming of Christ and the coming of the kingdom, there's a great step forward in, in, in the unfolding drama of redemption. But you also correspondingly read in the Gospels where there's this notable proliferation of satanic and demonic activity. And we see our Lord, he's rebuking demons and casting them out. And Peter he tells
tells us that he has demanded, he tells Peter that Satan has demanded uh, permission to sift him as wheat, but he has prayed for him. And, and then we know even in our own times, we read the New Testament, and that Satan, he snatches away the word of the kingdom that was sown in the heart, that, that he, he blinds the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the gospel of the glory of Christ. And even now, Peter writes that he writes that it applies to us now that Satan prowls about like a roaring lion, <clears throat> seeking someone to devour, which helps us to understand the nature of the Christian life. But these forces that they cannot and they will not prevail against the the, the complete culmination and fruition of the church. These, with respect to Satan, we read in <clears throat> Revelation chapter twenty, the devil who was deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Listen to these words from Revelation 17, 14. These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. The, the, the Lamb is the Lord who purchased the church, and the called and the chosen and the, face, and the faithful are the ones who are purchased. They're a part of the church. So primarily what I'm saying here this morning is it's a glorious benefit to be a part of the church of Jesus Christ. Other organizations come and go, but this goes on forever. The, the duration of our affiliation with earthly organizations is limited by our lives because our life is a vapor. You might go to a certain club and there's, there's a glass case over on the side and there's pictures of the president and the and the other officers from the 1930s and the 1940s they're gone they're not here anymore they're, they're gone from the organization but the glory of the church is it lasts forever it's a transcendent organization it is eternal and every promise will be fulfilled all the benefits that we are promised will ultimately be fulfilled when our lord returns now let us pray shall we Father, we do thank you for the church of Jesus Christ. We thank you for what a great and glorious benefit it is to be a part of it. And we thank you that you have called us from darkness to light. And we thank you that you have called us into the fellowship of the redeemed. And we can have assurance of your presence with us in this life. We have assurance that no forces can dislodge us from our communion with thee and our love for thee and our delight in the glory of your being. We're, we're thankful that there are no force that can stop the advancing and the progress of your blessed holy church. And we thank you that we are a part of that. We thank you for your son, and we thank you for the price that he paid to secure our membership, our eternal membership in this most precious eternal body. And we thank you. I, I pray that you would uh, apply these words to our own soul uh, for your honor and for your glory and for our good. And I pray that you would um, take us from here today with a sense, a renewed sense of, of your goodness and your faithfulness to us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.